Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the everyday practice of oral surgery. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon could improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon himself or herself. The vast majority of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The techniques and methods discussed are only meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with personal research into the clinically reviewed and approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Thomas Sarna. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. So, Tom, just connecting with you, you were one of my mentors in residency. You taught me a lot of the tricks of the trade. Yeah. I still remember, I think after you graduated, you texted me or called me or something and told me that you stopped switching the bite block and and you kept it on the left side for sedations. Do you still do that? No, I switch it. Oh, you you switch it now. Why did you go back? Lack of effective blocks when I didn't have the good visualization. Okay. Well, so that's our first question for you is what in the last, you know, couple of years of practice is something that you've discovered or changed to make things better for you on a daily basis? Well, I would say the most important thing that I've done is to create a series of systems in my practice by which duties are delegated. And then the only things that I'm really doing are the ones that I absolutely have to do. So if you think about the things that kill your schedule, kill your time, no shows, having to write notes to other physicians and coordinate care with a patient, having to call around to figure out the best referral if you have a a patient that needs another service that you're not providing. And so basically having staff that are familiar with what you do, what you like to do, how much of it you want to do, and then they can sort of take it and run with it. So delegation of duties that would normally kind of burden your day, use a lot of time in your day, and not be a very profitable use of your time. Got it. For example, we do a lot of same-day surgeries. We have patients coming from two to three hours away sometimes. They don't want to come in for a consult and talk to me for five or 10 minutes and then drive back home. Right. Not worth it for them. So we've really put in place a good preoperative process where there's multiple information phone calls done by the the front desk. So that cuts down on having to reschedule people that ate or people that are sick. We cut down on that by having a lot of interaction with the patient before they actually get to the office. And one of the big things that's been very valuable is confirming appointments. So we have a policy that we will call you 24 hours before your appointment to tell you the exact time that we want you to be there. So that allows us some flexibility in our schedule to condense things. And then secondly, once you've contacted them, 
you can determine if they're going to be there or not. And if they don't confirm with you, you can move their appointment off to the side. And if they do show up and you have time, you do it. But otherwise, they didn't confirm. Yeah. So basically, just kind of double booking your schedule that way, where you have a full schedule of confirmed patients, and then you can work in anybody that you can get to. But, you know, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and they were told beforehand to do that. So they may have to reschedule. Okay. And do you do your own follow-up calls and stuff? How does it go? I don't even even carry an on-call phone. So my surgical assistants rotate a on-call phone, and they field all the questions. Okay. I took call when I was in my group in Chicago and the majority of the calls are administrative calls and there's no reason for the doctor to be interrupted to tell the patient, no, you know, you gotta, you gotta come into the office for that. Or yeah, take ibuprofen and Tylenol. Like we told you, or, you know, read the instructions that we gave you. Right. There's no reason for the doctor. to. The exception is like my orthognathic cases. I give them my cell phone number because they're in the hospital and I want to make sure that they're taken care of while they're there. And by giving my cell phone number to them, I have a way of keeping in touch with them if they're there a couple of days after surgery to make sure they're, they're getting the nursing services that they need. That makes sense. And did it take you a while to teach your staff how to do all this or how to? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of scripting and it's also being comfortable with the person. Like, I'm not going to count on someone who's been with me for six months to, to do these kind of things. These are people that have been with me for three or four years, and they know how I want things, and they know how to talk to patients. They have a certain level of maturity and understanding of the clinical side of things where they can answer questions intelligently. Got it. Okay. And then there's always the option for them to reach out to me. I don't say, don't bother me, don't call me. I say, I'm the fourth call. so. You know, if, if you need to work something out and you and you don't know what to do, please call me. But it just puts a layer of insulation there. Got it. Okay. Between you and the practice. And I haven't really had any issues with it. The other thing that I do is I have on my post-operative instructions the number for the hospital that I'm on call at. So if they're trying to get in touch with my staff and they can't, they don't feel like, oh, you know, they're not answering the phone. There's nothing I can do. Then the hospital will page me. Uh, checks and balances then. You know, I had one of my assistants who left the on-call phone in her car overnight. You know, she had to be disciplined because of that, because I pay them to take call. And if they're not having the phone on them, there's no point of taking call. Exactly. So, I mean, there is definitely instances and even with employees that you find to be very valuable or educated, uh, intelligent, that people do stupid things. Okay. And what does your schedule look like? Are you running two or three columns? You know, what are they staggered or how does it look? Yeah, I run three columns. It's kind of not as busy as it was pre-COVID because of the social distancing measures that we've had to put in place. Okay. Our production probably down around, we're doing probably about 80% of what we did last year. Oh, really? Okay. And Basically, we'll, we'll probably end up with numbers like we had in 2018. So 2019 will be the up year, and now we're on the redo year yeah. of 2020 is, is another 2018, which is still very good, but it's just kind of – it's a different pace now with all the stuff that the girls are having to do. They bring the patient 
back with one parent after they check all the temperatures and then they have to do a special Mothrith and then they go over the screening questions. And, you know, my assistants pretty much do everything. I've never seen the patient before and I walk in and they've, they've already started the IV and they've gone over all the preoperative and postoperative instructions and everything's kind of done for me. Nice. So I'm doing only what I, I am required to do. Right. Even postoperatively, I, as soon as the patient's awake enough, I walk out of the room and I don't go out to the car. I used to go out to the car and talk to the family and the, and the patient, but I just don't, I don't see any real benefit to that because most of the time they just want to record their kid or, or their friend or yeah. spouse and all the information you're giving them, it's just going in one ear and not the other. So I think the written form of instructions is far more useful. And then having a trained staff member to, to go over and ask any questions. And then, you know, I'm on site. It's not like if they have a question, they don't know the answer to that. They have to answer it. And so the assistant set everything up, IVs in, you're kind of ready. You walk in the room. What, if anything is said between you and the patient? My consults are very brief. Basically, I'm confirming what we're doing, looking at the x-ray, talking about the risks that are involved in their particular case, talking about benefits, talking about recovery, what to expect in the post-operative period. All in all, it takes two to five minutes to give my little spiel. Yeah. That the same stuff over and over again. Okay. And on that spiel, I was going to ask you when, let's say you got the panorex and you have the inferior alveolar nerve overlapping the roots or, you know, it looks, looks close. What is that discussion you have with the patient? How, what do you say? How do you walk them through that stuff? So, you know, this is always a, a concern for a post-operative complication. If you have the inferior alveolar nerve in the same plane as the root. So basically if they're a, a risk for numbness, meaning they're root is in the same plane as their nerve, I would get a CT scan at my office and I'd evaluate if there's any intimate contact between the inferior alveolar nerve and the root. And then I'd explain to them that they have three options. They could leave the tooth in, but if it's bothering them, they're there to take it out. They could do what's called a coronectomy where we take out the top part of the tooth and leave the roots down by the nerve with the expectation that that root may drift up to the surface and have to be removed later on in life. But at that point, it would be away from the nerve and not a risk for numbness. Or if they're comfortable with the risk of numbness, even though they have intimate contact with their nerve, I will remove the tooth. But they've understood that they may have numbness and it may be permanent. Yeah. I know. I mean, some surgeons really kind of belabor the point and, you know, talk about the numbness and, and all that stuff. And then there's other surgeons who kind of feel like they don't want to freak out the patient and they want to right. mentally, they want the, the patient to think that they're going to recover. So they say things like, you know, it's probably going to be temporary, you know, you can get through it and stuff like that. Yes. Which end of the spectrum are you on? Well, I definitely want to inform them of the risks. I do downplay the fact that it is a sensory nerve and not a motor nerve that they're not going to be paralyzed and have a droopy lip right? because that's how someone's concerned. If you say numbness to their face, Yeah, they think of a stroke patient. And then just sort of get a gauge of what they think about that. You know, some patients will say, well, I'm a musician and I, I play a wind instrument. I need to have feeling there. Yeah. And then I'll say, well, it's kind of a no brainer that we're going to do a coronectomy for you or leave the tooth in. Okay. 
is it a similar discussion with the sinus or what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I don't get into discussion of the sinus too much unless it's really overtly going to be an issue. Okay. Oftentimes, you know, they're coming in for a bomb dot number two, roots are near the sinus. They've been told by their dentist already they're going to see the oral surgeon because it's in the sinus. Yeah. And they're very nervous about that. So I, I kind of downplay sinus stuff and say, hey, you know, if it's up in your sinus, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a perforation. You know, if we remove the tooth very gently, there may be a, a bony perforation, but the membrane can still be intact. If that membrane is not intact, we can put a material in there and some stitches. And then you just have to follow some precautions for a couple of days, a couple of weeks rather. Great. Okay. Yeah. And it seems like, I don't know about you, but it seems like the vast majority of, of sinus perforations, you know, where they're drinking after surgery and filling the fluid going into their sinus area. It seems like holding their hand for a couple months and that usually self-resolves. Exactly. Unless they're a smoker, then it's more likely you have to do something to repair it. Okay. Like how soon would you repair it or at what time would you do that? I follow the acute versus chronic rule. So if it's over a month and they still have a direct opening that I can visualize, then I would schedule them for a repair. Okay. If we're going to do a repair, I'm going to put them on Augmentin for a week before the procedure and a week after the procedure, as well as decongestants. I want to get everything as healthy as possible for healing. I do buckle fat pad advancement with a buckle flap. I haven't really done any palatal finger flaps. I've found that technique to be very effective. I've trained some of the ENTs at our hospital how to do it as well, and they've found it very rewarding as well. The buckle fat pad or... Buckle fat pad advancement for a sinus opening. Okay, very cool. And do you put any other membranes or anything in there? Or? It depends. You know, if I go in and the sinus has got purulence or it's got a lot of granulation tissue in it, and I go in there and clean that out, then I would put some sort of membrane to create a seal between the outside world and, and the sinus. A lot of times I go in there and I just leave that tissue, like scar tissue in the sinus there, and that's a seal. That's one layer of seal already. You know, a lot of them have what's like a dynamic perforation. So when you look in there, you don't see a hole, but when they're creating pressure, there actually is a hole there because right. the mucosa can move and stretch and there's some pliability there. Got it. I think those ones are more likely to heal in my experience without having to do anything. So if they have something that's dynamic, I may wait more than a month. I may wait another month, a two-month period to see if it's just going to seal off. And it really depends on the patient. Some people really overreact to this. You know, I see a lot of patients who the general dentist did the extraction, didn't talk to him about anything with the sinus. They go home from it, drink a cup of water. The general dentist takes out the tooth, sinus perforation, doesn't put any sutures or packing material in there. They, they come in and they say, I have severe pain and there's water going in my nose and I'm like, well, hold up. Like, it shouldn't be severe pain. It's not, not comfortable to have something in your nose or sinus, but it shouldn't be severe pain. And then just kind of counsel them that, okay, well, if you're a smoker, you need to stop smoking. Otherwise, this is never going to heal. Uh, try not to drink liquids if it's going through. Try and eat you know, semi-soft stuff so you're not creating an opening there. If there is a direct opening, then I'll go in and repair it after the first two to three weeks sometimes especially on an edentulous patient, first molar area, 
they have a communication that's really not going to heal because there's no socket there. Yeah. When there's a socket, you have a lot better potential for healing because you can get a blood clot to form there and organize. Yep. Okay. And when you're doing local anesthesia cases, well, first of all, what percent? Do you not do locals or what, what percent? I, <laughs> I do have a, a Grant Stuckey clinic at my office with like the geriatric sick people <laughs> that we do under local anesthesia. We call it this the Stuckey hour. <laughs> and we never, we never do more than four locals a day. So we're, we're booked way out for locals. Wow. But I just, I don't want to do locals. And so if you give them an appointment a month out, a lot of them will find someone else to do it. And that's fine by me. I don't think you necessarily see, need to see an oral surgeon if you're having a single tooth removed under local. I don't think that's the best use of our time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I think like when I was in my practice in Chicago, there was kind of a mentality that there was good patients and bad patients. And, you know, you have your good patients, which are like your high production procedures for impacted wisdom teeth on a teenager or a few implants or a single implant. Those are good patients. And then you have your bad patients who are, you know, the Grant Stuckey clinic, 90 years old with three pages of medical history and, you know, they can't walk or they walk very slowly. Yeah. They can't hear or they can hear very little. So it's just very kind of tedious to treat them. And, you know, they're not going to heal very well either. So it's like they're harder to treat. And there's also going to most likely be more post-op sequela to manage with them. Uh, they're on blood thinners or, or whatnot. So I try and limit the amount of headaches I have in my day. And I, I'm not saying the patients are a headache. I'm saying their situation is a headache. Yeah. I mean, I'll get referrals for like a 95 year old who has like broken off roots that have had root canals and the dentist wants to take them out. And I'll be like, just keep them. I mean, you're 95. Is, is anything hurting you? Right. No, just, I mean, why are we going to treat this person? If they're FTD fixing to die, then you don't want to <laughs> be the cause of their death. You know, it's a good point. And if they're not having pain and if there's no signs of infection, I mean, what are we really trying to accomplish? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm very put the patient first before money. Like you'll make a good living practicing very honestly in oral surgery. You don't have to go after everything and, and treat everything. You can really just yeah. do what you want and you can't make everybody happy either. That's the other lesson that you kind of set the expectations for them with what they're going to get. And you tell them, if you tell them, you know, hundred percent success rate with your implants and you have an implant fail, they're going to be upset. I tell patients I have a 90 to 95% success rate on the lower jaw and an 80 to 85 on the upper jaw. And so if I'm doing five implants on their upper jaw, I tell them we may have to replace one of them. We're doing five. And are you calling it the Grant Stuckey clinic? Because I was the first year when you were in your third year and I had to take all those, difficult people i think you you really took a liking to them like if, if there was ever a patient on a stretcher that was going to require multiple people to like transfer them to the chair or perhaps you're just going to treat them in the hallway on the stretcher that was just kind <laughs> of your thing and everybody had their thing luga had implants i had jaw surgeries funderburk had horizontal wisdom teeth and yours were like the train wreck medical history patients. Everyone that we trained with <laughs> knows that. It was just part of who you were. Like you, you were that 
really kind spirit that would kind of float in and, and like an angel almost take care of the, the really sick. Uh, that was so <laughs> kind. I didn't realize anyone was seeing the, the true nobility yeah. of what was happening. Well, you know, I was mostly paired up with Scott and we would kind of strategically move patients so that to ensure that you, that they were in the I, best hands. I knew you were doing that. <laughs> I employed similar techniques in my private practice because one of my partners was an MD. So whenever there was a medically compromised patient, I'd be like, well, we do have an MD doctor and, and you know, he's got an extra training for medical stuff. So we're going to schedule him on your, we're going to schedule you with him. You'll be in great hands. And they always yeah, appreciated so it. Very kind of you to do that. Oh my gosh. Looking back on residency, what was, you know, one of the, I guess, best things that you learned that carried into private practice? Because probably a big percent of what we did in residency, we don't do now. But what is something you can look back on and think, wow, that really was a helpful thing? Well, this is just an observation compared to what my training provided me versus what I see a lot of people coming out of residency with. It's really kind of a full scope of, of training and knowing of what your interests are, knowing what your limitations are. And really, I think we were very well prepared for the bread and butter type oral surgery practice. I meet lots of oral surgeons that don't know how to do an exposing bond. It's like the, the worst part of their day. And we did tons of them in our training. And you got very comfortable with that procedure in, in you know, accessing those teeth and, and doing the bonding procedure, which as an oral surgeon, it's really kind of a different touch than the touch we do for most of our other stuff. So, you know, to, to have developed that during training and, you know, you got guys who trained before implants were part of their training. And, and you know, we had good implant experience in our residency. And so we were able to kind of hit the ground running and not have to do a lot of learning on the fly, you know, with cash paying patients. That's awesome. And I know that, like you're saying, when you schedule things and you really make the best use of your time and you have assistants and front desk staff that are taking care of the bulk of the communication with the patient, I mean, I guess the, a question is how critical is it that we communicate well as surgeons because the majority of our patients are asleep and, you know, we don't see them too much. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, you have that limited window and I think you have to look at your office and your staff as a reflection of you. So the way that your front desk talks to the patient is just as important to the experience as the way you talk to the patient. Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses, different personalities. And some people are more bubbly and then they're really good at talking to people and making them comfortable. But then they're terrible with like details. Other people are good at details. But, you know, they're kind of like talking to a, a shoe. They don't have a lot of personality. They're kind of focused on the details, but they can't see the big picture. So, I mean, just knowing the strengths and weaknesses of your team members so that you can put them in a position where they're able to excel and, and be their best. Okay. And have you had any experiences where maybe you've had a difficult parent or a patient or something where it was the communication was very tough and you're like, 
trying to get through it? And if so, what did you do in a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, we have cases like that on a daily basis where, you know, the parents aren't really there intellectually and you do have to fill a gap in the knowledge and try and make sure that they're understanding what you're, what you're telling them and understanding what's going to be involved with the procedure and the recovery and the risks that are involved and, you know, how they can take care of things afterwards. I think that's a daily thing. That's what makes, you know, being a, a doctor not the best thing in the world. You know, you have to deal with these personal situations with people that they're unhappy. They feel like you've done something wrong. You don't feel like you've done anything wrong. You have plenty of evidence that says you you are in the right, but they just have that feeling that you did something wrong. And I mean, there's not much you can really do. You just have to document. And I had a lady last week who, or two weeks ago, she came in for her daughter's wisdom teeth and we talked about it, signed the consent. And like a week later, she called and said, yeah, my daughter's still sore. And why would you take out all those teeth at the same time? You know, the staff was like, well, that's what we do. You know, we remove all four of them at the same time. Bring her in for a post-operative visit. We'll make sure nothing's going on. You check her out. So then the mom was saying, well, I didn't give you guys permission to take out her wisdom teeth. And because she's like, she's hurting and I'm not going to tell her that I, I told them to, I, I told you guys to do this to her. I'm like, well, you signed the paperwork. We talked about it. You didn't, she was actually a patient that had come in for a consultation. You know, most of my cases are, are same day surgery. So it had already been explained in detail and she brought her in. Like the, if you bring the patient in for the treatment, it's kind of hard to argue that you didn't want yeah. the treatment. You know, she didn't bring her in for evaluation. She brought her in for treatment. So, I mean, we basically sent her the, the consent form that she had signed and said, you know, we're happy to, to see her for any post-operative issues, but, you know, there's there's nothing that we need to do. And she's like, well, I'm going to get a refund on this. And she didn't even pay for the procedure. The Medicaid paid for 90% of it and she paid under $100, I think. And we're like, no, you're not. <laughs> she was on her phone the whole time that I was talking to her. And then even on the post-operative visit, after accusing of, us of doing the procedure without consent, she's on her phone the whole time while I'm in there talking to them. It's not, it's not our fault if you're not paying attention or you're not intelligent. I mean, we're, we're going to go over the, the information. If you have a question and you can't figure something out or you don't understand something, you got to ask. You can't sign the paper and walk out of the room and then say, I didn't sign that paper. I don't know that you're going to do that. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have these systems of paperwork, because you got to cover yourself from from that. And I mean, those are the those are the things that make you want to retire someday. If we didn't have situations like that, I could do this for the rest of my life. It's so fun. Yeah. But, you know, dealing with people that are manipulative or liars or cheats, that makes the job really unenjoyable. The other thing I don't like is is failures. So I get really upset when an implant fails. And I just know I'm losing money. You know, I'm having to replace the implant for free. Sometimes they want to cover the cost of the restoration too, if they had a restoration yep. on it. So I would much rather do wisdom teeth than implants because it's very unlikely that you're going to have a, a failure with wisdom right. teeth. You can, you can have complications, but 
you're not going to, that's the nice thing about oral surgery. There's not a lot of failures. What are our failures? Infections, dry sockets, implants falling out, implants in the wrong position, bonded bracket coming off. You know, everything that we have is, as complications is pretty reversible, except for, you know, numbness and nerve injuries, facial nerve injuries. Those kind of things are more concerning. So more consent is needed, more explanations needed, more times needed with those types of cases. Yeah, you bring up the the whole phone issue with patients and not paying attention. I mean, I feel like it's just every year it gets worse. Like people are so glued to their phone. Yeah. I don't know if you've had this experience. I do probably 30% of my cases are local. And some of these people, I'm, I'm literally like standing there. They have the phone in their face. I'm like, okay, let's get started. And they're just texting and acting like I didn't say anything. Like they're totally oblivious. And I have to, again, hey. And it's just like the phones are getting out of control. You're a little too nice, I think. Yeah. That's, a, that's one of the problems I suffer from too. If, right. If you're too nice, people take I mean, advantage of I you. probably should have a policy where you got to turn off your phone or leave it in the lobby. I don't know, but it's getting tough. It's disrespectful. And, and even like when patients answer a call while you're, while you're talking to them, like they don't have to answer that call. Most of the time they're like, hello? Yes? Oh, no, I'm not interested in getting my roof replaced. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't have to answer that right. call. You're wasting my time answering an unknown number. And telling them no thank yeah. you, like, and it's tough. It's, you gotta. I sometimes struggle with trying to be patient and kind of taking your time. And a lot of times, I find I just have to give them two promptings, like, "Hey, it's time to get started." And if they just won't get off the phone, it's like, "Okay, let's give you a five minute break and check back." And I take my gloves off, walk out, go see somebody else. But it's something I think is just gonna get worse over time. Everyone's becoming plugged in. Yeah. I would love to visit you someday in Arkansas. Yeah, you should come down. I think it's really a great idea to, to check out each other's practices because you can just learn so much yeah. from how they do things. And I've had quite a few people come down and, and check out my office and they'll be like, you know, how do you do 10 surgeries in a morning? And I'll, I'll show them, you know, that's how you do it. And it's cool. It's all about efficiency, you know, having, having everything lined up and getting it done. Yeah. I think it takes time to find and train good staff, but it's definitely worth it once you have really thoroughly kind of walked them through the process over and over again and they finally get it. Yeah. I mean, my girls are great. They're like clinicians. They're diagnosing caries. They're diagnosing internal resorption. Like they're, they're coming to me and be like, yeah, the dentist sent them over for number 31, but take a look at number four. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm like, damn, they know more than the dentist. <laughs> But oh my gosh. It's crazy. Sometimes they just pick up on stuff and if they do it enough, I mean, some of them have been doing it for 10 years. So, I mean, they have as much experience as I do not doing the same stuff, but I mean, I bring my assistants in for jaw surgeries. So they've scrubbed in on 20, 30 jaw surgeries in their life. And you know, it's more than a lot of dentists or some oral surgeons. Yeah, for sure. That reminds me of the UIC hospital or did our training i remember like the first few cases i you know was was the primary operator on when i was still a first or second year uh-huh. and i'd be doing the surgery and you know most of the staff the nurses are are filipino 
yeah. and they're they're so awesome. A lot of them have been there for thirty plus years. Yeah, and, and I I always remember how hilarious it was when I'd be like, you know, cutting or doing something, and one of the nurses would kind of lean in and go, "That's a very interesting technique that you have there, Doctor Stuckey. I've never seen that." <laughs> <laughs> And I'd always just like stop and be like, wait a second, what do you mean that you've never seen this? Oh, no, I've never seen that. Usually the doctors do it this way. But you know what? I don't know anything. I've only been here for 30 years. You just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, did you ever experience that? I mean, some of these people are very knowledgeable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, someone that's been in it, you got nurses like that, too, that have been in the trenches for so long. And they're great diagnosticians, and they're not legally allowed to diagnose, but I trust their opinion over someone that's a year out or two years out in a lot of cases. Right. For sure. Well, that's awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking time to chat with me today. Yeah. I'm sure, sure you're busy, but do you have soccer games and other stuff going on or what's happening? No, there? We're not doing any kind of uh, organized sports in our house because okay. the kids are just all free spirits. I like that. We have them just running around. We have a walled off yard. So they all just run around and we have like a basketball court, volleyball court, trampoline, pool. They just, they stay busy back in the yard. And you're not worried about them kind of having any type of formal instruction or organization? Well, I mean, there's four of them, so they're, they're their own society. <laughs> they gang I up think, me and Heidi. Yeah. Ganging up on us. It sounds like you're a parent to the same degree that I am, perhaps. Yeah. It's on the opposite spectrum of the helicopter parent. Yeah, me too. And I think that makes it more difficult for me to deal with helicopter parents because I'm not that. And so I get get quickly annoyed. I'm like, you know. Okay, come back out to the waiting room. (laughs) Right. We're done with you. You can wait in your car. (laughs) That's <laughs> wait in your car. Yeah. Good times, man. Well, great to connect with you. I'd love to, you know, have you on the podcast again and just really appreciate you sharing some of your information because it's invaluable. Great. Thank you for taking your time to, to meet with me. It's really good that you're doing this. I enjoyed it. Awesome, man. Well, have a good rest of the day. I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeons Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or feel free to text me or call me at 720-775-5843. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or any feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, I would love for you to call or email me. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.